Hey listeners, today's episode deals with the topics of sexual assault and murder. We wanted to notify our listeners who may experience trauma related to those topics ahead of the episode and to let you know that resources are listed on the website. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. Hi. Hey. Oh, my goodness. Are you so happy to have all of your belongings back? Let me tell you something. This has been a real trip. To like, it has been a real oh, trip. This whole experience. If you haven't like seen some of this stuff for almost a year. I haven't seen any of this stuff for almost a year. <laughs> well, that's true. You haven't seen this stuff for a year. Yeah, you've had all of our stuff. Just a quick recap, listeners. Anne has been holding all of our belongings from our like two-bedroom apartment in California in their office where they record and do other things um, for what was supposed to be like three weeks maximum and mm-hmm. turned into almost nine full months. Uh, that is t- completed. We have received our belongings mm-hmm. and we have been unpacking for a few days which has been great we're almost all done unpacking which is beautiful we took literally friday and and monday off so that we could like just do this at our leisure and we're almost all done i just want to say one thing and i don't care if this is controversial okay pods the company that Uh, we use to move uh uh-huh uh proceed with caution oh really yes why because every step of this whole moving process has been littered with obstacles for us, as you know. Yes. Hence why Anne had our stuff for nine months. First, we right. got scammed by a moving company. And that was a, a debacle that literally just resolved itself at month seven. So that was a whole problem on its own. Pods has been pretty good on the front end. Like very professional. Obviously, they're a reputable company. They drew up the contract. They were very good about letting me reschedule whenever I needed to reschedule things. Right. Fine. And now we're at the point where they have dropped everything off. Dropping off was fine. Great. It was very challenging to get parking spots from our neighbor to let them deliver the pod because you Uh, need two full parking spots. mm -hmm. And Davey's a lot kinder about this than I am. Mm -hmm. I personally think if my neighbor, who I'm friendly with asked me if they could use my parking spot for 24 hours, I'd have no problem. Yeah. I'd be like, oh, yeah, sure. I'll park somewhere else for that. I'll, I'll figure it out. Wow, you right. gave me three weeks notice. No problem. Right. But instead, our neighbor initi- instantly was like, well, then where am I going to park? <laughs> Whatever. Fine. We figured that all out. Begged and pleaded and, and figured that out. Right. Now, the pod was supposed to be picked up yesterday. Uh-huh. I'm literally using our spot and somebody else's, who I already had a very hard time to get that spot from. Right. They sent us a um, window of time they were supposed to come within. The window of time came and passed. They did not come. They did not call. So I called. Uh-huh. They said, oh, yeah, you're right. You were scheduled. Don't worry. Everything is good. They're probably just a little behind. I see that the people are en route. Let me call and see what's going on. They call, they get me off of hold and tell me they couldn't get in touch with the people, but that they're probably just behind. And I said, okay, just want to confirm that this is still getting picked up today because it needs to be picked up today. 
And, oh yes, yes, picked up today, just later probably. Okay, fine, I'm home all day. Four hours later, I get a call from someone at Pods who said, oh, we're rescheduling you for Tuesday. Uh. Tuesday. It is Sunday. Today? This was on Saturday. It was supposed to get picked up on Saturday morning by 12, 15 p.m. And they're going to tell me now, oh, we're rescheduling you for Tuesday. Yeah. And I was like, that's unacceptable. I don't have that spot till Tuesday. It was hard enough. It's not my spot. Yeah. Everyone pays for their spot. It's not mine. Well, that's all. And, like, the person basically was just a, like, damage control person. So she had no control over doing anything other than telling me over and over and over again, it is what it is. It's coming on Tuesday. (laughs) No guarantee. Am I going to get a refund? I'll put in a request. Um, so no guarantee on anything. Just like you're screwed and deal with it. Yeah, good luck. So for the next few hours, we were on the phone with other people at Pods. I mean, we were just on the phone for so long. And I was like, I don't understand. They couldn't even give an explanation as to why. Like, oh, the people are behind or, oh, the the pod thing broke. Nothing. No explanation. Yeah, it was just see you Tuesday. See you next Tuesday, basically, to me. <laughs> so it's just a pain. Now we have to beg for that spot for five more days or whatever, however many more days. I'll cut a lot of that out. I'll just, just, I just need to. I was like, you know what? I'm going to tell everybody, everybody I know about this pod situation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, what, do, what do we got for this week before we start? Um. Okay. So I watched a couple of things that I wanted to mention. Mm. Um two different sort of true crimey related things. So the first one was a documentary series called The Web of Make-Believe. Mm-hmm. And it's produced by Ron Howard, who, oh. you know, famous producer Ron Howard. Happy Days. And star of Happy Days. Um, and it's all about crimes that occurred as a result of or like using the internet. And oh, I saw, th- I saw a promo for this. It's really, it's good. It's really, really good. And there are some things, some episodes of it that I was like jaw dropping to watch what was happening. So Godsmacked. Godsmacked, exactly. So highly, not to be confused with the band Godsmack. Do you remember Godsmack? <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, not to be confused with them. It, really good episodes, really shocking and only, I think, like, four or five episodes. So you can kind of, like, watch it in a weekend or something if you want. Ooh, nice. Maybe that'll be tonight. Yeah. And then we also watched and finished The Staircase, the <gasps> HBO drama of uh, starring Shut Tony Collette and Colin Firth. Up. Did you watch it all? Literally before we started recording, we finished it. Matt. That was so good. It was, like, it got better as it went on, too. Like, at the beginning, I was like, is this just going to be a retelling of the pot, of the documentary? But it just started to really fill in a lot of blanks and behind the scenes. And, I mean, the acting. How good were those characters as the actual characters? I think that possibly this might be the best dramatization of any true crime stuff I've ever seen. It's so well done. It's so well done. Colin Colin Firth is such an incredible actor. I as I was watching him, I regularly forgot that I was not watching Michael Peterson. I'm telling you, like at first I was like, oh, he doesn't look enough like him for me to like have that wall broken. He yeah. just he was him. He yeah. was him. The was affect, the mannerisms, just unbelievable. Like, 
everything just fits so well. And they just did so good. Yeah. I mean, and that lawyer, the lawyers. Oh, you know what's so funny is I spent the first, like, two and a half episodes thinking that the lawyer was Mandy Patinkin. But he's <laughs> he also looks, does such a good job of playing David Silver. Yeah, I was just very, and it didn't change my opinion at all. It, if anything, it reinforced my opinion. Are you, you're still a fan of the owl opinion? Uh, event no right? no he totally killed her i'm sorry there's no doubt in my mind that he killed his wife listen i swear to god i think in an episode probably like five or six episodes ago we mentioned it and you you say you're a fan of the owl theory the owl theory i actually think the way they presented the owl theory in this series was better than they showed it in the actual documentary i agree I actually was like a little bit like, oh, maybe. Yeah. But if anything, this just made me be like, okay, the quote unquote feathers they found. Right. Were like literally, I'm not even just saying figuratively, literally super microscopic. Right. And they live in the woods. Yeah. (laughs) And she was outside by all accounts beforehand. I mean, come on. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I think I like the owl theory. I think it's creative. Mm-hmm. And I just like it because of what it is. But no, it, he, he 100% killed her. I'm That's sorry. what I think, too. Without a doubt, in my mind. And the one of the main reasons I think that is he lied to everyone constantly about oh. everything. Always. Always. Anyway, anyway, uh, anyway go watch I, it. Um, I only have one quick thing. Okay. It's just a weird glitch in the Matrix moment for us. All right. So on our Patreon, uh, coming up at some point, I'm not sure when it gets released, but we just recently recorded Anne and I going through like the 36 questions. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And I had never heard of that before. Oh, really? So it's not something that was like in my world. I might have heard of it, but I never heard the questions, certainly. Maybe I read it in like one of those like, take a quiz oh, type yeah. things. What kind of pizza are you? Um <laughs> And I I love it. I think it's so fun. And I hadn't, like, searched for it or anything on my phone. Nothing. Literally, like, two days after we recorded that, I was at work. And on my Spotify, I listen sometimes to, like, um, Discover Weekly or whatever. Mm-hmm. And it just recommends things to you based on your listening that you might like. Yeah. And there was this song. And I was like, oh, this is, sounds like a, it's from a musical maybe. Sounds like kind of a modern musical song, but I was really into it. So mm-hmm. I was like, let me look up what this is from. And it's from a musical called 36. And it's a pod, It's a musical podcast. Oh, interesting. Which I think is so interesting. I didn't listen to it in podcast form yet. I think I'm going to go back and do that. But it's it was created as a musical podcast, like three episodes worth and it stars um, just two characters mainly, which is Jonathan Groff and Jesse Shelton. Okay. And they play a couple who are estranged now, like divorcing and estranged. Mm-hmm. And it's in short because she evidently had a false identity that she presented to him when they got together. Okay. And then he discovers it several years into their marriage and leaves her. And now they're trying to like finalize the divorce slash possibly reconcile Mm -hmm. by going through the 36 questions that they did when they first met, but now with her actual quote unquote identity. Interesting. And it's so good. It's so Mm -hmm. good. I'm just blown away. But I was like, wow, how did they find me? (laughs) 
yeah seriously the uh, glitch in the matrix really paid off that time yeah so if you like musicals especially sort of like more modern types of musicals i mean this is literally a podcast i think they're going to make it into a netflix thing i could see it happening okay cool um if you like that kind of thing, check out 36. I've only listened to the, like, the soundtrack on Spotify. Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's probably more well put together if you look up the actual podcast. <laughs> but yeah, I thought it was great. So highly recommend. And that's all I got. Yeah, just for a little additional context for listeners, Matt and I on a recent Patreon episode have been playing or answering the 36 questions to make you fall in love with someone and seeing if we fall in love with each other or if you fall in love with us. So if you're not on our Patreon, go uh, subscribe to it because it's really fun. Oh, we have so much fun stuff there. Um, should we get into the episode? I think so. Let's do it. All right. Well, buckle up, buckaroo. <laughs> I'm buckled. This is season four, episode 11 of Law and Order. It's called Golden Ears, right? Yes. Thank God. And uh, not to be confused with Golden Girls, but I wish. So the episode begins with what appears to be a human version of Marjorie the Trash Heap from Fraggle Rock (laughs) walking down the hallway. But instead, we discover it's just a woman, like, literally covered in 30 layers of beige fabric. Oh, my God. She notices her neighbor's door is pried open, and she enters in cautiously, shouting out for Mildred. Mm -hmm. The house is very stereotypically full of old, elderly person tropes. Mm -hmm. Um, Old china is displayed, crocheted blankets everywhere, a drawer of silver... A basket of yarn. <laughs> so we know we're... And the woman's name is Mildred. So we know we're, it's, an, it's an old lady's house. Golden ears. Here we go. Um, everything is disheveled and sort of upside down, though, in the house. So it's very alarming. She finally finds Mildred in her bedroom on the ground, unconscious. Mm. And we will soon find out that she is indeed passed on. The detectives and police arrive on the scene. They discover that the victim was 82 years old. Her name was Mildred, as we heard. She's bruised and she has a cut on her jaw, which I thought would be relevant, but it's not. And then the neighbor, who we just saw covered in fabric, um, interrupts and says, "Um, hey, just make sure you look for all of her belongings. I gave her some candlesticks. She's got some jewelry, blah, blah, blah. She knows where everything is, and she's obviously very shaken up. Mm Mm-hmm. The opening credits begin, so I had some spare time, Mm -hmm. and I was like, you know, I need some coffee. Mm -hmm. So I went to a pottery making class, and I (laughs) created a mug, and I cured it, I finished it off, brought it home, made myself some fresh coffee, and I'm back. Nice. Thank you. Very ghost. uh, What color was the glaze of the pottery? Oh, it was like a nice blue. Nice. like a nice blue sheen to it. Mm-hmm. So we, re- we return, and there's a hot doctor who gives them very little information other than the fact that the next of kin is, in, is around to talk to them. Mm-hmm. The hot doctor is a very famous actor who I'm who surprised you didn't recognize as Daniel Day Kim. Oh, my God. You're right. A young... Uh. Still gorgeous, Daniel Day Kim. Literally the most beautiful man in the world. I thought N is going to literally pass away when they see this. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't recognize him. You're going to have to go back and look. Just I am. Just have a still or something. 
Wow. So as we heard, the next of kin has shown up, and it's the uh, victim's daughter-in-law and her granddaughter. And they said that they wanted her to be in a home at some point because she needed help, but she didn't want to do that. Uh, but instead, they hired a live-in for her, which to me, I thought, meant like a nurse. I would have thought, yeah. But it's a maid. Okay. I, I, I don't know. Unusual, but yeah. Okay. So they hired a maid to live there. Her name is Maria Gonzalez, and she was supposed to be staying with her. Because she lives with her, and because she's Dominican, we find out, in the next scene, the detectives immediately assume she must be living in the U.S. illegally, and now we have our motive, and we are we have our killer. Of course, they've they've really made the huge leap forward, based solely on the fact that this woman is Dominican. Yeah, delightful. They're, they're fans of doing things like that. They sure are. So the one thing that is suspicious is that she's missing, and she supposedly lives at the address. So where is she? So right. they're like, I know how to find out how to get her. We're not going to look up her name in any database. We're not going to figure out who she is. We're going to go to the other maids in the park where, of course, they're just, you know, where the other maids just hang yeah, out. the great maid network. <laughs> exactly. It's like made in Manhattan, but not the yes. version with J-Lo. Yeah. So they go in and they find uh, a group of maids or caretakers, and nobody wants to talk to them for various reasons that I'm not even going to get into, but mm-hmm. I really don't blame them Mm-mm. based on how they're treating them in the park. And they say, okay, well, if no one talks to us, we're going to call immigration. So someone's basically like, okay, enough is enough. If you want to go find Maria, you should talk to Felix Ortega because that's someone she's been seeing. So they decide to follow up. They find where Felix lives, and Maria is there with him. And she says, I'm very sorry about what happened to Mildred, but I wasn't there. I was fired, actually. So... Sorry, but I was fired on Tuesday, and this yeah. happened, I think, on a Friday. And they're like, okay, who fired you? The daughter-in-law? And she's like, no, the granddaughter. So they mm-hmm. go check with the granddaughter, and she says, I didn't fire her. What is she talking about? And then she's, she immediately says, she must have robbed her. I mean, I know she was, like, stealing from her in life, but why would she hurt my grandma? And they're like, why did you not mention that she was stealing before? Like, don't you think that would be, like, the first thing you would tell us? Like, You would think. That would be suspicious. And they're talking to her a little bit more. And then randomly, a man emerges from the bedroom. And everyone looks at him like he's a ghost. Like, <laughs> oh, my God, I can't believe someone just entered the room. I can't believe anybody else lives here. This right. is a grown woman, like, living on her own. It's right. not like she's, like, hiding someone in her bedroom from her parents. Right. But they're like, <gasps> when someone walks out of the room, and he goes, sorry, I'm hungry. <laughs> what? What was the point? And he walks through the room, and they all look at him like, oh, my God. So, number one, I'm thinking, what's the big deal? Number two, I'm assuming this is her boyfriend. And it's like, if you're th- you're kind of a dick. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, she's being interrogated by officers, like detectives, and you can't wait a minute to get some chips. Mm-mm. Anyway, so the detectives are really thrown out, off by this, but they're like, okay, fine. We're going to go check with uh, Maria and Felix again and figure out what's going on. And, and they make the whole thing when they go back to this apartment about Maria being Dominican again. The whole mm-hmm. thing has nothing to do with her being a suspect or the fact that she lived with her or nothing. It's literally just because she's Latinx. Yep. So they go there and they're like, okay, we're going to search your apartment. We don't have a warrant, but we're going to do it anyway. 
they find a gift wrap wrapped box that she was going to send to family, it looks like, in the Dominican Republic. She says it's a gift for her nephew, but when they open it up, it is the ugliest pair of candlesticks I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and they're like, um, weird thing to give your nephew, since yeah. you're like, you yourself are like 20. <laughs> I mean, I don't know any, I mean, and I'm gay, and I wouldn't even have wanted, like, antique candlesticks at the age of nine. But they're like, okay, um, we know these candlesticks belong to her because the pile of clothes that the sentient pile of clothes neighbor had told them, look for the candlesticks I gave her. Mm-hmm. So now they go talk to her again. She's now a pile of green blankets with a beret. And she says, um, these are the candlesticks I gave her for sure. But I doubt that these were gifted to Maria as Maria claims because she wouldn't, she wouldn't give them to her. So now they bring Maria into for questioning. She's accompanied by her lawyer, and she says that she was fired, but not for stealing, like the granddaughter Laura had claimed. But she was fired because she was told to underfeed Mildred, the victim, and give her just a little bit of water every day. And that made her feel terrible to do that because it's, like, uh, unethical and cruel. cruel. (laughs) Um, So she disobeyed that order and gave her more than, like, a glass of water per day. And uh, when the granddaughter saw her doing this and giving her grandmother full portions, she was fired. Mm -hmm. So she says that on that Friday, she wanted to check on Mildred just because she she didn't trust her care to the granddaughter for obvious reasons. When they got to the house, she didn't answer the door. So Felix did help her break in so that they did pry the door open. But when they got in, everything was just as the detectives have seen it all disheveled and Mildred was already was already deceased. Mm-hmm. She also has with her some evidence. Uh, it's like little dietary instructions on post-it notes sort of thing that the granddaughter okay. had given to her. And it has things that says that, um, it says they say things like one cooked carrot, <laughs> half of a potato only. Like d- direct words, half of a potato only. <laughs> I don't mean to like laugh about the idea that she's being told to starve this woman. But, but the instructions are ridiculous. Also, like, who would carrot. write that down? Like, you needed to remember right. half potato only. But Very strange. But at least she's got evidence. So we go back to see Daniel Day Kim, the hot Emmy, and he says that she died of dehydration and she was starving to death. So everything is sort of getting put together. They question Laura, and she admits, yeah, I did write those dietary notes because... Uh, because Maria was feeding my grandmother, quote, empanadas. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if they told her to mis- mispronounce the word or if it was just her own uh, character choice. Her but own it, flair, yeah. It definitely colors it for us, the, the type of people these people are. She says that her grandma had a kidney problem and she had a very specific diet that was prescribed to her by her doctor. So she was just abiding by that. So they go check with the doctor. The doctor's like, yeah, I gave her a reduced diet with less of it liquids because she was having a condition. But I don't know how long she needed to be on this diet for because for follow-up, the granddaughter told me her grandma had a new doctor and they weren't interested in my help anymore. So I just left it alone. So now they want to see what would be the motive for Laura to want to kill her grandmother possibly. So they check and see if Laura was getting some sort of huge inheritance or her mother was for for some reason. 
and a lawyer that, like, I guess handled the estate of Mildred tells the detectives that she didn't really have a lot, and everything she was she had was she was even either leaving to charity or leaving behind to Laura, but what she was leaving behind to Laura was not a lot. It wasn't enough to, like, you know, sustain her in any meaningful right. way. Right. And even less to her mom, who is Mildred's daughter-in-law. But then they find out she was being very generous to Laura while she was alive. They were She was paying for things. She had bought her, like, a Rolls Royce or something. And be, it was all because when uh, the lawyer knows because um, he did some sort of living video will, which looked like a, it looks like it was filmed in, like, the Jacobian Myers ad office. <laughs> and they're like, um, yeah, when Laura came in with her grandma, she had her fiancé with her. She said she was going to law school. Or her fiancé was very well-to-do. And, uh, you know, she was proud of her granddaughter. So she was supporting her very much in life because of these reasons. Right. So they're like, all right. And they also we also find out Mildred was sort of, like, old-fashioned, traditional, possibly racist, probably a bigot. So not, <laughs> you know, not looking... Like, she's uh, the most open-minded. Right. So then they go check with the supposed fiancé, who we've not seen up until this point. It's not Mr. I'm Hungry from before. So (laughs) they talk to him. He's very, like, buttoned-up kind of businessman type. And he says, oh, yeah, we dated briefly, me and Laura, but we were never engaged. We did lie to Mildred about it because, you know, she wanted her family name to go on to, like, someone very academic and high class and so it made her feel good and it turns out laura was also not a law student and possibly not even looking to be one that was a lender lie as well just to make mildred kind of happy and we discovered that the apartment mildred lived in was going to be left to laura and in a very confusing conversation i think it turns out that laura's been spending money i don't know right cash in the i don't know how this type of stuff works but basically Laura's spending money that's going, like, from the apartment, from the ownership of it. And so they go check with her friends, I guess. Very unclear who the next woman they speak to is, but the thing that is clear about her is that her earrings are the shape of a Nickelodeon splat. (laughs) 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 They are the most... I couldn't stop looking at them the whole time she was on camera. I couldn't tell you what she looked like, besides she had big hair and splat earrings. (laughs) <laughs> she said I don't even know who she really is she's a friend I guess but she yeah, says yeah that's kind of what I remember I was like who are you but she says that on the Thursday which was the day before Maria and Felix broke into the apartment and found Mildred dead Thursday night Laura had insisted that before they went out clubbing they would go check on her grandma and she went up to the apartment and came back down to the car and said oh she's sleeping And so detectives bring this sort of, like, funny, strange timeline to Kincaid. Maria was fired on a Tuesday, which is the last time Laura claims to have seen her grandmother. Then we find out that she actually saw her grandmother on Thursday night and said she was alive and sleeping. And then on Friday, Maria confirms that Mildred was dead. And I think that's when they find Mildred's body anyway. Mm -hmm. So they go ahead and they arrest Laura, much to her and her mother's chagrin. You're a Next. fan of that word. You are or you're not? You are. I love that word. I was going to say, <laughs> me too. <laughs> um, I also like the word umbrage. Mm, <laughs> not to be confused with a Harry Potter professor. Not at all. <laughs> 
So next, Laura and her lawyer, who we've seen before in the show, it's Tova Feldsda, who goes on to play uh, Rebecca Bunch's mom in Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, among other things. Love her. This is Laura's lawyer. They talk to Stone and say that this is all ridiculous. They don't have, you know, the usual. You don't have any evidence. You don't have enough on us. She was taking care of her grandma and studying for finals. This is all BS. You're barking up the wrong tree. Kincaid goes ahead and visits Eileen, who is Laura's mom, who we've seen a a little earlier. And she says that Laura cared for her grandmother very well. And Mildred has other children, and they don't care for her half as well as her granddaughter does. And Kincaid goes... Is Laura as bitter as you are? (laughs) Damn, girl. Um, They think that the mom knows more than she's willing to say, but so far they don't really have enough to to do anything with. The next scene is not important other than the fact that Schiff claims that he's middle-aged instead of 5,000 years old, which is clearly wrong because we know he's Mm -hmm. a Skeksis. Um, (laughs) Then we go to the next scene where it's like jury selection. And, you know, they're both, like, asking questions to jurors. Do you, you know, like old people, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And the defense objects to all jurors over 65 without even questioning them. They're like, nope, those are out. And the judge allows it. And there's an argument about it. Basically, the judge is like, she can do what she wants. She can say she doesn't like these jurors. Make sure your case is good. Now we head to the trial. And we have that neighbor on the stand, the one who wears the beret and 500 pounds of clothing. I was going to say the sentient pile of laundry that you called her. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. She's on the stand and she says that Laura, the granddaughter, is kind of a liar. Uh, Mildred wasn't really that sickly last time she saw her. But then the defense then gets a hold of her and they paint her as a mooch. She's sort of been like... Steal, not stealing, but taking advantage of Mildred when she was alive and her, mm-hmm. her money to get, like, dental work or something. They take a short recess, and we learn that the prosecution's other witness, Maria, is being deported in six hours. Disgusting. Mm-hmm. Stone still wants her to testify, so they meet with her and her lawyer, and the lawyer says, no, she's not testifying unless you can drop the deportation. And Stone says, I can't, I don't have any control over that, but guess what? If she doesn't testify, she's going to go to jail first, and then she's going to get deported. It's really (laughs) disgusting. I hated that whole scene. Yeah. Hated it. So, um, and it's just breezed over, like NBD. What a shame. On the stand, Maria says that she was fired, but not for stealing. She was fired for starving, not for not starving Mildred. And when she went back to the apartment after being fired, she went to go give Laura, like, oh, well, here's her medication. It happened in my purse. And Laura right. told her, keep them. My grandma won't, won't need them anymore. The defense attorney, who's now dressed like she's a phone sex hotline operator in an, in an ad, <laughs> uh, late night TV in the 90s. She's like literally wearing like a silk sheet made into a blouse. Um, <laughs> she says all this kind of stuff to discredit the witness and say like, oh, well, you're being, you know, allowed to stay in the country but for this testimony, which we know, unfortunately, is not true. Right. Then Laura testifies and she says, I took great care of my grandmother. And, you know, I'm just doing the best I can. And then Stone questions her, and or Stone is about to question her, and they decide to recess till morning. In that interim between, Stone wonders, why were they even trying to 
deport Maria in the first place? Like, why would she be someone on anybody's, like, watch list? Right. So they investigate that and find out that there was an anonymous tip that was called in on her. So the next day, we're back in court. And uh, again, it's Stone's turn to question Laura. And he paints her as a liar because of all the lies she's told. And someone that's bitter about not getting any inheritance. And uh, she wasn't stacking up to Mildred's high expectations for her. And then he accuses her of lying about not knowing Maria's home address earlier because they believe that she was the one who made the call to INS. Mm -hmm. And her attorney, who is now in another super shiny silk sheet, just a different color, she gets up and she objects. But Stone has surprise evidence. It is Laura's cell phone records that show she is the anonymous tip. Not shocking. Mm. She says, I, you know, I was confused. I didn't know what to do. I felt bad because I couldn't save my grandmother. That's what this is all really about. I couldn't save her and I wanted to save her. And my grandma I, wanted to die and I tried to help her and I couldn't. So it's emotional and shocking. Stone is back in chambers and Mildred's priest is just randomly waiting for him there. Like, he heard about the trial on the news or something, so he just showed up out of, you know, mm-hmm. godly duty, whatever. And he <laughs> says, um, I have to let you know, I wasn't put up to this, but Mildred had visited me like a couple weeks ago or a couple months ago and asked me if she let herself die and let God take its course in her life without like, you know, getting medication or whatever, would that be considered suicide? Will I still get into heaven's gates and whatever? Stone goes to talk to Laura in his chambers and she blames the whole thing on being catholic and uh she says that you know everything i did or didn't do was because i'm i'm a catholic <sighs> and stone kind of buys it um schiff is not really a huge fan of of this whole situation he's kind of like well you had her you had this whole case this doesn't change anything but right. Stone feels bad, and he wants her to accept a plea for assisted suicide instead of murder. And with a lot of back and forth and emotional should I, shouldn't I, Laura decides to take the plea. She almost lets slip that her her grandmother sometimes wasn't in her right mind and wasn't mm-hmm. completely there. But her lawyer stops her from saying it last minute. And she takes the plea for two years, two years for assisted mm-hmm. suicide. And uh, that cuts it down from what could have been 25 years. And that is the end of the episode. Well, what, I guess we'll talk about what we thought about the episode at the end. Mm, uh, we will. We will. <laughs> well, are you ready to hear about the true crime that inspired the episode? I mean, am I? Well, no, because it was not inspired by a specific crime. <laughs> I had a feeling. Um, so I tried kind of like Googling to to find a similar scenario to this episode, but I didn't couldn't really find anything about somebody starving uh, a person to death. Uh, and I just, I started researching elder abuse cases, but really, yeah, anyway, anyway, <laughs> didn't really find anything similar. And so I went on Reddit and looked at the true crime subreddit Mm -hmm. to find crimes or stories that people want 
covered that they haven't seen covered very much. And I chose one of those. Mm. So this this is the story of Carly Martinez. Okay. So Carly Martinez and her old, or not her old, her twin brother, Carlos, were born June 15th, 1979 in El Paso, Texas. Carly and Carlos, that's cute. Carly and Carlos, yes. Uh, when she graduated from high school, she moved from El Paso to uh, Las Cruces, New Mexico, where she attended New Mexico University. And she was majoring in speech therapy and lived in the Garcia Hall dorm. Okay. Um, after winter break, her father took her back to campus and dropped her off. This is January of 1998. Uh, he dropped her off outside her dorm room and he... As she left, she turned around and said, I love you, Dad, and then walked to her dorm room. The next morning, January 15th, Carly's roommates were concerned because she was not there, and it looked like her bed had not been slept in. Hmm. So they immediately called Carly's parents to notify them that it looked like Carly hadn't come home that night, and their parent, her parents were, of course, worried, and they contacted New Mexico State University campus and police department about her disappearance and a search for Carly began. And I'm sorry, how, how old is she? She's a, in college. Uh, Yeah, she's 18. She was a freshman. Okay. Okay. The search for Carly goes on for a few days. Her parents are posting flyers about her disappearance all over both New Mexico and her hometown of El Paso. A lot of volunteers have offered to help distribute the flyers, and a $13,000 reward for information that would lead to her recovery is posted. In an article in the El Paso Times about two weeks after her disappearance, friends and family of Carly's uh, described her as sweet, gregarious, with a broad smile that could melt the frostiest individual. Mm. Carly's father, Carlos, told reporters, quote, with every day that goes by with no news, we obviously have growing fears of the worst. We're on a real emotional roller coaster of emotions, but we remain hopeful for the best. Police questioned Carly's roommates, who informed police that Carly had met a man at a a computer center at the university. Um, This man was not a student at the university. He just happened to use the computer center. And he worked at a nearby Hastings book, music, and video store in Las Cruces, which I was like, wow, literally that store, (laughs) three things that just aren't sold in person anymore. Uh, Right? I mean, I guess books, but anyway. January 19th, this is now uh, four days after her disappearance, uh, police questioned that man, whose name was Jesse Avalos, as well as his friend, Jason Desnoyers, about their whereabouts the evening of January 14th, which was the last time that Carly was seen. And this was just someone that they heard that people had said was the last person she was seen with. Correct. This guy from the bookstore, from the media store. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And I'll, I'll kind of give some other information on, like, how, how police got pointed toward them okay, in, okay. A, in just a few. So uh, they questioned Jesse and Jason, uh, Jesse Avalos and Jason Desnoyers, uh, about their whereabouts the evening of the 14th. And they initially cooperated with investigators and would later provide hair, saliva, and blood samples Uh, But told investigators that their story was that they had, you know, picked up Carly, they had gone to 
a roller rink together and then they hung out at a, at a couple bars and then they dropped her off at a payphone near campus and then they parted ways. Okay. FBI Special Agent Andrew Armillo would later testify that Desnoyers during these uh, conversations seemed, quote, very cordial, very cooperative, and seemed to be very comfortable, and uh, that he gave no indication of anything other than kind of a, a regular friendship with his friend Jason Desnoyers. Okay. Which I mentioned that because that will come into play later as kind of the relationship between the two. Mm-hmm. So Desnoyers told police... Uh, again, during these initial interrogations or questionings, quote, I hope you find her. She has a good head on her shoulders. Shortly after they provided DNA samples to police, Desnoyers boarded a bus and left New Mexico for San Diego, hmm. like the next day. Okay. When they compared Avalos and Desnoyers' statements uh, during these interrogations or questionings, Uh, police noted that there were some discrepancies in their stories. And so they were like, "Mm, they're not quite giving us the same accounting of events. So let's let's continue to look into these two. Uh, So they went to question Avalos at his apartment. And this was when police learned that Desnoyers had skipped town. Mm -hmm. And so this is when the FBI got involved and they tried to locate Desnoyers for further questioning but they were unable to locate him in San Diego, and he did have some relatives in the area, but they had said that Desnoyers had not been in touch with him. In the San Diego area or still in New Mexico area? Uh, The article that I read specifically mentioned the San Diego family had not heard from him. Gotcha, okay. So meanwhile, police were contacted by a man named Joe LaCrone, who was the owner of the roller rink, And he told police that he had seen Carly with Desnoyers and Avalos on the night of the 14th at the roller rink and that they had all left together in a truck with, uh, or they had all left together in a truck. Mm -hmm. So neither uh, Avalos nor Desnoyers owned a truck, but police found that uh, Desnoyer's father and stepmother had a truck. And so they, on January 20th, were able to obtain permission from Desnoyer's father and stepmother to search their 1986 Ford Ranger that he was known to sometimes borrow. Hmm. During investigation of the truck, they didn't find any blood stains or anything else that indicated that, you know, maybe there was some foul play. Uh, police described it as, quote, really clean uh, mm. and nothing kind of visible in the truck. But further inspection revealed a large blood stain on the bottom of the seat cover, as well as blood that stained the foam interior of the middle seat of the truck. Mm, I was going to say, they're going to cut that stuff open. Yep. So the reason it was so clean was because they had had it cleaned And this ended up destroying any uh, opportunity for them to collect DNA from that blood sample. So what about the blood samples that were like underneath? It was too like degraded or whatever? Apparently, yeah. I I was surprised by that. And, you know, this is... The 70s, mm, right? The 80s? No, this is mid to late 90s. Oh, okay, right. Okay. Oh, wait. uh, No, that's not right. Yeah, mid to late 90s. She was born in 79. I think I just got confused. Yeah, yeah. So... 
you know, I, maybe today forensic technology would be better at picking that up, but it seems like they weren't able to get anything useful out of that that yeah. blood, blood stain. Um, however, this was enough to kind of raise concerns for police that uh, they were involved in Carly's disappearance, and so they were able to obtain a search warrant for Desnoyer's apartment. And there they found a parka jacket that had some blood splatters on it. Hmm. And in the search of Avalos's apartment, police found a shower curtain with three different blood samples on it. Wow. One which belonged to Avalos, one which belonged to Desnoyers, and the third which they presumed belonged to Carly. Hmm. Later on in the kind of investigation and the story, the location of these blood samples is significant so i'm i'm pointing out that like the shower curtain had blood samples from all three of them on it right okay so police interrogated both avalos um and destroyers about carly's whereabouts and avalos as i said like was kind of just like friendly with the police cooperative he apparently was like cracking jokes with them and kind of painting himself as this helpful guy who was helping police to find Carly and that he wasn't involved in the crime. He was just kind of like helping them. Yeah. Um, police, of course, presumed at this point that given the blood samples and the fact that these were the two men who were last seen alive with, last seen with Carly, that they had likely murdered Carly Martinez. Right. So they issued arrest warrants for both of them and on February 19th, but... As I mentioned, Desnoyers had skipped town, so he wasn't arrested until March 17th when the San Diego police was able to pick him up and send him back to Las Cruces. Did they mention where he was? Was he with family? It, no. Okay. It, it, what's interesting is the article that I read about him being picked up by police was just like, uh, it, it almost sounds like happenstance that the police were like, oh, this is that guy that they're looking for yeah. kind of thing. Uh, it didn't seem to be like we had located him at XY location based on, you know, AB information or whatever. Right. Okay. So upon his arrest, Avalos was given a polygraph test and the results of the polygraph test indicated that he answered no to two different questions. Uh, and he was lying when he gave that answer. And those two questions were, did you cause Carly Martinez's disappearance? And do you know where Carly is now? Mm. So he lied. Uh, the polygraph indicated he lied when he said no to both of those questions. Mm. Okay. On March 17th, when Desnoyers was arrested, he waived his rights to a lawyer and agreed to answer any of the police's questions. And again, that would also come up in later appeals that uh, he had waived his rights. He would later say that he did not. Okay. Several I was attempts. Say, to that's very like brave and brazen if you are guilty. Yes. You know. Yes. 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 Um, several attempts during this period to find Carly's remains were made based on information that both Avalos and Desnoyers had provided, but those searches were unsuccessful multiple times. And there's a few articles that kind of indicate that one or both of them were doing this to kind of like dick around the police, um, and like purposefully have them searching in the wrong areas or not point them to the right location, um, and or maybe they didn't remember exactly or couldn't specify exactly, but it does. Here's what I'll say. Both of these guys seem like real 
pieces of crap throughout this whole story. And so my inclination is to believe that uh, they uh, were intentionally misleading police with locations. And uh, I'll mention that again later. Okay. Yeah. So um, Desnoyers ultimately agreed to kind of lead investigators to the location of Carly's remains. Uh, But again, like they also, in addition to like providing them like, oh, go search here. They like, were like, okay, I'll take you there. And like, then would lead this search and it would, they would not find her remains. So they were being deliberately difficult with police. Yeah. On March 21st, even though they had not yet located her remains, police notified Carly's family that they believed that she had been murdered by Desnoyers and Avalos. And the next day, a search party made up of officers and civilian volunteers uh, in a remote part of the New Mexico desert near the Mesilla Dam in Doña Ana County uh, found the remains of Carly Martinez. The search uh, was based on information from Desnoyers, uh, and it was in an area about six miles from where she had last been seen. Wow. This was 65 days after her disappearance on January 14th that her body was found. Um, Her body was nude, minus a sock and a bra that was pushed up around her neck. And it appeared that they had attempted to burn her remains as well. Ugh, disgusting. Yeah. She was 18 years old at the time of her death. And now that police had located her remains, uh, police now, on March 24th, knowing that the knowing that they were not going to get away with it at this point, both Avalos and Desnoyers began to give a story to police about Carly's murder, and both of them blamed each other for Carly's murder. So they were both like, okay, I knew about it, but I didn't do it. It was him. Yeah. So during autopsy, the Office of the Medical Investigator determined that Carly had been stabbed more than 30 times in the neck, chest, and back, And the stab wounds were caused by two different instruments. One appeared to be a knife and one was kind of uh, more rounded um, stab wounds that indicated they believed it was like a pair of needle nose pliers. Oh, wow. Yeah. Anyway, um, she had also suffered multiple blunt force trauma wounds to the head. Uh, DNA evidence collected from underneath Carly's fingernails was found to match the DNA samples taken from both Avalos and Desnoyers. What's interesting about this story is uh, this is this story is one that is not super well documented. And so you occasionally get contradictory information in articles. You know, you know, when you research a case that's like, it's kind of people gossiping and repeating some information in the news that isn't necessarily accurate. And you start of sort of start to see that pop up in the same way in multiple articles. Um, One article mentioned, had a quote from Avalos's defense attorney specifically saying that DNA was not found under her fingernails, but most of the articles indicated that there was DNA that matched both of them uh, from underneath her fingernails. Mm, Okay. The autopsy also revealed a small piece of steel lodged in her cheekbone, which an FBI metallurgist would later testify was the tip of a cutting instrument like a knife. So presumably the tip had broken off when she was being stabbed. So terrible. Yeah. 
So based on this evidence and testimonies from Avalos and Desnoyers, investigators now had a pretty clear picture of what had happened up to the point of her murder. So I'm going to backtrack to the 14th for just a moment, January 14th. So as I mentioned, Carly had met Jesse Avalos at this computer lab at the NMSU campus. Uh, And he was not a student there, but uh, somehow they kind of met each other and were corresponding by email. Uh, And in those emails, police would find that he had asked Carly out a couple of times and she had apparently like turned him down or, you know, sort of like evaded his requests. Uh, But they also found that in one email to her, Avalos joked like, oh, you should go out with me. I'm not an axe murderer or a stalker. And then in another email said, hey, what am I going to do with you, girl? Shooting would be too messy, but, I th- but I'll think of something. Which, to me, when I read that, to me, I was like, why would she then go out with him? Because if, if I got that email, I probably wouldn't go out with him. And I'm, I'm not victim-blaming her for going no. out with him. I'm, I'm wondering if there was kind of some pressure or uh, force to get her to go out with him. Because it seems, that seems like a, a strange joke to make unless they had kind of a strange joking type relationship definitely anyway so the evening when carly was last seen alive jesse avalos had invited her to go to the skating rink uh the roller skating rink in las cruces and she had agreed and he picked her up at the nmsu campus at six o'clock p.m and while at the skating rink carly and jesse ran into one of jesse's friends jason desnoyers The three of them spent the evening together and went to a couple of different clubs and bars in Las Cruces, uh, one of which was at the Welcome Inn, which was the last place that any witnesses had seen Carly alive. So police believed at that point that they uh, drove Carly out near the location where her remains were found, that they raped and murdered her there. So... The men were tried separately, in part because they ha- they were accusing each other of having committed the murder. So they couldn't be tried together because the judge felt that there was a risk that it having a joint trial would compromise their ability to cross-examine witnesses if they were accusing each other, if that makes sense. Yeah. So Desnoyers was tried first, and it was followed by Avalos's trial a couple of months later. And in both trials, the men continued to stick with their stories that the other person was responsible for Carly's murder. Um, each of them had—their stories were slightly different, but both of them had said that they— that they knew that the other guy was like more interested in Carly so that they had backed off and, and fallen asleep. And when they woke up, they found that the other person had murdered Carly. So not only were they like, not the person who murdered her, they were like asleep when it happened. And this was like both part of both of their stories at one point. Avalos, his story was a little bit different. Uh, he said that Desnoyer's head dropped him off at home before they dropped off Carly. And then a few hours later, Avalos says that Desnoyers returned to his apartment covered in blood and asking him to help cover up the crime. Okay. Uh, Desnoyers, on the other hand, says that when he woke up in the truck, he saw Carly's body and saw Avalos covered in blood and that Avalos had pressured him into covering up Carly's murder. 
Uh, he said that Avalos had, like, intimidated and threatened him and his family and if he didn't help him and implied that he had connections with the Mexican mafia, which d- none of the articles indicated that that was true. I mean, that uh, feels like such a stretch, especially since yes. these two guys know each other before right, this. exactly. In some way, at least. You know what I mean? Like, no yeah. matter what the, the implication ends up being, they obviously know one another. Yes, exactly. And what, you just woke up in the car. Come on. Yeah. So, uh, again, as I said, uh, prosecutors believed that the story was they had taken her into the desert intending to have sex with her. She refused, and then they raped and murdered her. And uh, the prosecutor says that they, you know, then were worried that she would report them for the rape, so that's why they murdered and disposed of her body. Um, However... As I mentioned earlier, the location of the DNA samples that they found uh, ended up providing evidence against both of their version of events, uh, because both of them were claiming no involvement in her murder, but because Carly's DNA was found on property belonging to both Avalos and Desnoyers, and one of those samples included blood from all three of them, mm-hmm. the DAs were able to argue that both had been involved in her murder. I was going to say. Yeah. So... Adding to the prosecution's evidence was testimony from Avalos' neighbor, Stephen Trejo, who stated that when police came to arrest Avalos, Avalos gave him the parka jacket and asked him to get rid of it. So he was trying to tamper with evidence. So um, as I mentioned, Desnoyer's trial was first, and in court, the his defense attorney claimed that Desnoyers was afraid of Avalos harming him if he didn't help him cover up the murder. Um, but Tiffany Neal, a bartender at the Welcome Inn, which was the last place that Carly was seen alive, she testified that two nights after her murder, she had seen the two men drinking together at the bar and they were just like chatting genially and hanging out. And so prosecutors used her testimony to poke holes in his claim that Avalos had threatened and intimidated him into involvement. Mm-hmm. Um, police testified that they had recovered a keychain at the burn site with the name Carly on it, with a key belonging to her dorm room. They had also located an earring and a bracelet belonging to Carly on opposite sides of the utility road leading to the location in the desert west of Las Cruces. And this, they believed, were indication of a struggle. And this was supported by the fact that Carly's dried blood was found in two separate parts of the roadway, about 40 yards from the location of her remains. So it sounds like during the drive, at some point, a a fight began, uh, and Carly put up a struggle in a couple of different locations. I was going to say, do you think that Carly had a feeling that something was bad was going to happen? I mean... Knew something yeah. bad was going to happen to her and discarded those items along the way to kind of oh. lead people to her? You know, I didn't think about the the leaving breadcrumbs idea, but that's totally possible. I do think that uh, in the truck is when things started, when she was like, oh, this is bad. Uh, and because there was blood found in the truck, you know? Right. So I do think that the assault started in some way in the truck when they left the welcome in together. Yeah, so maybe she knew like this is this is not going to go well, and either yeah. I'm going to be left behind and hopefully survive, or worse, I want to make sure people find me. Yeah, yeah. 
So a witness named Robert Hofelt testified that uh, he was at the roller rink the night that uh, she had disappeared and that when he saw the three of them, Desnoyers was acting like super possessive of Carly. And when Robert had looked at Carly, Desnoyers apparently like threatened him. Mm. Uh, So he was acting kind of aggressively toward other men over Carly. A co-worker of Jesse Avalos's named Sam Sanchez, uh, and this was the person who had been the first to report to police that uh, he had seen Carly with Desnoyers and Avalos, so he was the one who kind of uh, led police to these two men. He testified that Avalos had joked about Carly's disappearance in the weeks between her disappearance and the discovery of her remains. And another one of his co-workers, whose name was Miracle Bushman, testified that two days after Carly had disappeared, she had been giving Avalos a ride home, and on the drive, the two of them had seen Carly's missing posters, and she said that uh, she had felt sorry for Carly's family, and Avalos said, quote, that bitch deserves to be missing. When she asked him about it a couple days later, he apparently threw some books at her and said, quote, stop being so nosy. You could be missing next. You could end up dead just like Carly. Oh, my God. Miracle testified that she asked Avalos how he knew Carly was dead, because at this point, she was just all, missing. all people knew was she was missing. Exactly. And she said that Avalos replied that he, quote, just knew. Another witness testified that days after Carly's murder, he had been at the same roller rink and Avalos and Disnoyers were there together, again, so poking holes in the he threatened me or or intimidated me story, Um, and that he heard that, like, you know, it was a roller rink, people, like, were making noises and some woman, like, made a kind of, like, screaming fun noise in the roller rink. And he said uh, that Avalos, he heard Avalos say, quote, that's the way Carly Martinez screamed. He reportedly also testified that Avalos got into a bit of a confrontation with another customer and chased him out of the roller rink. And when Avalos came back to like the group, he said, quote, if I'd caught him, he'd be missing like Carly Martinez. Oh, my God. Now, while both men denied having sexually assaulted Carly and the state of her decomposition precluded investigators' ability to obtain evidence of rape or sexual assault, Officer John Gould of the Doña Ana County Detention Center testified that he heard Avalos while while he was in custody tell another inmate at the Las Cruces jail, quote, We were messing around and I bit her. She pushed me off and tried to get away. I couldn't stop. I got pissed. The next thing, she's dead. So we took her out in the desert and left her. Larry Leotero, who was an inmate, um, testified that as he and Desnoyers walked into the Bernalillo, 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 Bernalillo County Courthouse, um, there was a lot, there was like news vans there covering the story. And uh, Larry Leotero says that Disnoyers pointed to the vans and said, that's for me. We killed the girl in Las Cruces. This is the biggest thing since OJ Simpson. Unbelievable. I, I was dreading as soon as you said that news vans, I just knew he was yep. going to say something so Awful. vile. Yep. 
Um, Otero also testified that when he and Disnoyers were being held in neighboring cells, Avalos had said, quote, un- that he and, quote, another guy got this girl drunk and took her out to the Mesa. Otero testified that Disnoyers had told him that Carly, quote, wouldn't put out, so we got her more drunk. And Disnoyers told him, quote, my friend lost it and he bit her on the shoulder real hard. And that when we were, that when he asked if Disnoyers, like, he, when Otero had said, like, did you just stand there while he was, like, assaulting her? And he said Disnoyers didn't respond to him, uh, but told him that he and his friend, quote, had chopped her up with a Leatherman tool. So the Leatherman tool, um, as I mentioned, there was uh, puncture wounds that indicated both a knife and maybe mm-hmm. like a pair of needle nose pliers. Uh, a Leatherman tool, I'm not familiar, but it's, it's something familiar. that apparently has has like both. Yeah, tools it's like on a it. it's like a very fancy Swiss Army knife. Like yes. a more expensive yeah, yeah, yeah. version. My dad used to have those. Okay. The Leatherman tool. The, it's like a very, like, they're, I mean, I was scared of it using it as like a screwdriver or whatever. Yeah. Or whatever, because of all the other tools on it. It Interestingly, though, the uh, FBI metallurgist who testified said that the metal recovered from Char- Carly's cheekbone was of a higher grade stainless steel than a Leatherman tool. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's interesting that that didn't match, but that he had said this and that it uh, kind of indicated the other, uh, it it fit the story of the injuries. Yeah, but I mean, there were two of them and two types of weapons. So maybe like, you know what I mean? He could have used the knife portion of the Leatherman tool, but the other perpetrator could have had his own knife you know yeah true another inmate named william markstadt testified that he had heard avalos make statements about him and his friends taking him and his friend taking turns raping and stabbing a female college student and that he heard avalos state that uh, police had more evidence on his friend than on him because he had washed his clothes at his mother's house following the murder and markstadt also stated that avalos had you know told police that he, or sorry, Avalos told Markstadt that he had been like helping out police and, you know, just helping them with the investigation. And he was being framed for all of this. And Markstadt, this is the quote that like boiled my blood. Markstadt said that Avalos said, quote, if it was one of my daughters, I'd want a man like me to come forward. What a piece of shit. Oh my God. Desnoyer's legal team attempted to have both Otero and Markstadt's testimony excluded from evidence, um, in part because Otero did serve as a confidential informant uh, for the police department, and they said that this violated uh, Desnoyer's due process, but uh, both of these attempts to have their testimonies excluded from evidence failed. Good. His lawyers also attempted to have Desnoyer's initial statements to police excluded, because remember I mentioned... He waived his right to uh, counsel. Mm-hmm. Uh, Desnoyer said he didn't waive his right to counsel, but uh, there were recordings of Desnoyer's on the phone with his father where he uh, said that he had made cooperative statements to police. So these guys were literally not only lying to everyone left, right, and center, they were also just bad at it they were giving everyone lies that could be easily disproven like they really thought they were never going to get caught yeah 
So the state also, I'm sorry, Avalos did not take the trial in his stand, which is not uncommon. Um, Wait, when... did not take the stand in his trial. Oh, yeah, sorry. Did I <laughs> switch those words? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He didn't take the stand in his trial, which is not uncommon because once a defendant does take the stand, they've waived their right to silence and they're legally obligated to answer uh, cross-examining questions. Mm -hmm. So it's not uncommon for a person on a murder trial to not take the stand for that reason. Several of Carly's family members testified, including her twin brother and her parents. And Carly's mother, Rachel, took the stand, describing her daughter as friendly, shy, and trusting, and said, quote, yet she became the victim of a willful, intentional, heinous crime. Now I envision her when I am waking or sleeping, her murder, her violation, her desecration. In her closing arguments, Doña Anna, Doña Anna County District Attorney Susanna Martinez, no relation to Carly Martinez, mm -hmm. said that, quote, two people were out there in the middle of nowhere where there isn't a soul to hear you. It took two men to control Carly Martinez that day, and it took two men to kill Carly Martinez. Jesse Avalos needs to be convicted on every single charge for the absolute brutal murder of Carly Martinez. Uh, do not let Jesse Avalos benefit from taking the police for a ride. Because um, she also talked about how he had like manipulated police and played with them for like two months uh, yeah. before giving them any useful information. Uh, so, as I mentioned, Desnoyer's trial was first, Avalos was, was second. Uh, Desnoyer's first trial ended in a mistrial. Uh, nine, nine of the jurors uh, felt he was guilty, while three felt there was insufficient evidence to convict. Oh, come on. And uh, between his first and second trial, Desnoyer's was also indicted for an additional felony charge based on additional evidence they had collected. <laughs> and his lawyers tried to claim this was like double jeopardy, but that also failed. Good. Desnoyer's second trial was moved to Albuquerque, and he was tried again in November of 1999. Uh, the change was due to the heavy news coverage that the case was receiving in Las Cruces, and so they were worried that they wouldn't have an impartial jury. Right. So between Desnoyer's first trial, which ended in a, a hung jury, and his second trial, Avalos had his trial. At his trial, he was convicted of first-degree felony murder, three counts of tampering with evidence, three counts of conspiring to tamper with evidence, as well as kidnapping and rape, and he was sentenced to life in prison plus 62 years. Good. Uh... Avalos will be eligible for parole in 2061, at which point he will be 89 years old, I believe. Mm. Upon conviction, Avalos apologized to the Martinez family for her murder and for destroying evidence. And uh, I do have his statement, but I don't want to give him any more airtime. So I will say that uh, he did indicate that he wished he had led prosecutors to her remains sooner, like he regretted dicking the police around. Yeah, okay. Um, at Desnoyer's second trial, jurors deliber deliberated for nine and a half hours before re uh, returning with a verdict of guilty for murder, rape, kidnapping, and 10 other counts. He was sentenced to life in prison plus 34 and a half years. Nice. Um, Good. Now, what's interesting, I was reading about this because he, one of the additional charges that Desnoyer's got between his first and third trial was felony murder. And uh, so I did a little research on that. And apparently that felony murder, if 
you are committing a felony while somebody else is committing that felony with you, if that other person kills somebody, you can be tried for felony murder even if you didn't murder that person because you were part of the felony in which the murder occurred. Mm, Okay. So uh, Desnoyer's statement said that, and I'm I'm saying this just because I fucking hate this guy. Desnoyers said during sentencing, I feel guilty, not for Carly Martinez, but for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Give me a fucking break. He also accused prosecutors, the police, and the judge of being, quote, corrupt liars. And he would later yell at reporters after his guilty verdict, saying, you're all in danger because of this system. Nobody won today. His stepmother um, would speak during sentencing, and she said, quote, you, the district attorney, and the media are guilty. They are human vermin and corrupt public officials. Bye. Yeah. In sentencing, Judge Robert Robles said that this was, quote, the most brutal and horrific, brutal and barbaric, uh, I have heard, brutal and barbaric crime I have heard of in my 25 years on the bench. The Martinez family attended all of the rulings and sentencing, wearing buttons with a picture of Carly that said, Carly, we love you. Stop the violence. And scholarships in Carly's name have been created at Burgess High School and MacArthur Middle School, which she had attended in El Paso. And at Burger High, they planted a tree and a rose garden in her memory. A mosaic memorial in honor of Carly was placed at the Crime Victims Memorial in Marwood Park. And an endowed scholarship fund of $10,000 in her name was created at NMSU to support a a young woman student. Carly's family held an annual run called the Carly Martinez Race for Awareness in her honor at Marwood Park, the proceeds from which go to support the victims of sex crimes. Mm -hmm. Carly's father, Carlos, said in 2018, quote, 20 years ago, our family was shaken by the disappearance of our daughter, Carly. We can remember Carly by being supportive of the victims of sexual assault, to help them, to support them, and be a positive force in their lives. Mm-hmm. And that is the story of Carly Martinez. Wow. That is so... Awful. Sad. Yeah, I, I mean... I, the And I just... I hate, I hate those guys so much. Oh my god. And you know what? Honestly, like, obviously... Um, what was Disnoyers? the last name? Obviously, Disnoyers is the bigger like public jackass of the two yes um because of his statements and all that but i don't think the other one gets a pass at all or any sort of like oh well at least he was sorry no you should be absolutely should be sorry you don't get a um any extra credit for being the the one who has remorse like i don't believe that like you should have remorse that yeah. is just the base level minute. You shouldn't do it in the first place, obviously. But yeah, of course you should have remorse. It's not like, oh, I hate when people do that when they're like, yeah, but they have remorse. Of right. course they do. They should. They, they absolutely should awful. have remorse. That's not, you don't get a reward for that. That is like, right. yes, you have remorse. I'm, I'm always blown away when families of of victims have the emotional fortitude and grit to to work to try to yeah do something positive in the name of the the person who's lost because how how do you pick yourself up after that happens right. it, for yeah. general life let alone to do extra work to to save other people or to tr- try to help other people i mean 
uh, that yeah. family is very strong, very yes, brave, very. and very. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. I just feel so bad for them. Well, how would you rate the Law and Order episode? Um, honestly, for watchability, despite some of the like ridiculousness of what I thought they were trying to portray, um, mm-hmm. I thought it was pretty entertaining. Yeah, so, it wasn't bad. Yeah, I'd give it a B for watchability. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. For how it dealt with the topics in the episode, I'm going to give it a D minus. Okay. Because I have no problems with the way they portrayed the, um, you know, they, they, it was interesting. It was an interesting case and it was very interesting that the red herring the whole time didn't get sort of like revealed into the end, like literally the last yeah. few scenes that maybe Mildred wanted to die. That was, you know, interesting, and I think they handled that before with, like, the Dr. Gavorkian, excuse me, um, assisted suicide episode we did a few years ago. Yeah. But I hate so much what they did as far as how they treated the Latinx community and the Afro-Latino community and the way they were portrayed and the way they handled Maria's character in that episode I thought was just disgraceful awful disgraceful yeah, I and agree. completely unnecessary completely unnecessary so d minus you're rating d minus okay um i'll go with a d minus as well we'll be in full agreement today yeah before we wrap up i just want to spotlight something or or bring some sort of light to something um okay your case kind of reminded me of this and i i meant to write it down in the vein of making sure that victims of violent crimes who don't get heard or whose names don't get spoken a lot. Uh Um, Tragically, a friend of mine, a coworker and friend of mine at work had a friend of hers in Ventura County killed. And this was the one we posted the GoFundMe for? No, this is brand new. This this just happened like a week ago. Um, so I just want to say her name. So about a week ago, from when you're hearing this, listeners, probably about two weeks ago, a woman named Nicole Abilar, and forgive me if I'm mispronouncing your last name, I haven't heard it spoken, was shot and killed waiting at the Oxnard bus station, just sitting her, like what do, was it a random thing? They don't know. There's like there's a reward. So those of you out there who live in the Southern California area or who know anything about this, at last I heard from the last article I can find, authorities in the city of Oxnard are offering a $25,000 reward for any information leading to the arrest of uh the homicides. Mm-hmm. There were two people shot and killed. Um one was a 57-year-old man named William Tenner. He was a man um, experiencing homelessness. And then the other was my friend's good friend, Nicole Abilar. She was 33 years old, and uh, there doesn't seem to be any sort of rhyme or reason to it. Just killed in the middle of the night waiting for a bus in Oxnard. And I just... I just think it's terrible. It's it's very hard to find information out there. And I think um, 
if you have any information, if anyone who hears this could possibly have any information, I think it's worth saying. And I just want people to know their names, particularly Nicole's, since I have a personal connection to them. And um, I don't want to get too deep into it, but there's a huge problem with guns in this country. And um, Boy, is there. I mean, yeah, I just wanted to say her name, and I have the um, sincerest... Uh, condolences for the family and friends of Nicole. I don't, I don't, didn't know her, but my, yeah. my good friend at work does. And, uh, I just have a lot of, my heart goes out to you and I know that doesn't mean much, but I want people to know her name. So yeah, that's all. All right. Well, hate to, to end on a sad note, but yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, If any of you out there would like to help us grow, the very best thing that you can do is to rate and review our podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to our episodes. Yes, and uh, posting about us online or or telling other people about our podcast is huge because uh, most people hear about a podcast from word of mouth. So I always see people on Reddit asking, like, what's a good new podcast, true crime podcast to listen to? So go there and tell them to listen to ours. Honestly, and we really love connecting with our listeners. So if you do listen and you like us, feel free to send us an email to rippedheadlinespod at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Ripped Headlines. And if you have any information or if you want to know how you can help to donate to Nicole's family, just reach out to us there as well. Just say hi, anything. We're, we're here to, to listen. Yeah. And uh, our website is rippedheadlinespod.com, and that has the link to our Patreon, where Matt and I do a lot of other fun stuff. So check that out. And a percentage of our Patreon proceeds gets donated to the Equal Justice Initiative. So by supporting us, you're automatically supporting positive change in the world. Yes. And if you want, you can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash nandmatt. Thanks so much for listening to Rip from the Headlines, where you get the facts and the fiction. We will see you next week, and until then, stay out of the headlines. Bye.